Hello, everybody. Just a very quick one about Instagram. If you're on it, Meta, the parent company, is reducing the number of political posts visible to users on their feed. This is a real thing, not a hoax. So go to your Instagram profile, tap the three horizontal lines in the top right corner to open the settings tab, scroll down to what you see, click on content preferences, open political content, and turn on don't limit political content. That's an option. Otherwise, you won't see almost anything we post because we are deemed political. Please do that now or you won't even see the posts about our shows, our fun things. So if you want to see Guilty Feminist content and know when we're coming to a place near you, releasing a new podcast, do it now. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with Code Program for a four-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code Program. I'm, o- I'm not texting. I'm opening the notes on my phone. This, this, is, this really is an emergency episode because I'm, I'm, I'm plugged in. I'm standing up. I don't know what I'm doing. Okay, here we go. I'm actually regretting... This should be an I'm a feminist belt. I'm a feminist, but I'm slightly regretting this jumpsuit because I think it's a very good look in still photos. I forgot I was on Instagram Live and I'm not sure how it's going to video, especially when I'm doing this kind of thing. I feel like it might be very flattering and then incredibly unflattering. I was aware when I was on the side. I was like, how's it working on the side? I'm a feminist, but I'm now really glad I wore it. Just got my ass cheered there accidentally. Accidentally. Are there any accidents, Dr. Freud? Do you want to go? Yes. I'm a feminist, but last week we had dinner with these people we don't know really well, and the husband looked at my husband and said, oh man, you look really trim. And then he turned to me and said, how's your comedy tour? And I was like, fuck you. I'm a feminist, but today, because this is an emergency episode on at three o'clock this afternoon, and I was sort of trying to prepare material and stuff, I realised I'd left the prepping of myself too late, so I've turned up with wet hair, which I thought was going to have that lovely beachy wahoo look, but actually I've just scrunched mousse into it and it's still wet and it just looks like I've got out of the shower. I've also overdone it on the magnetic eyeliner because I was worried that the magnetic eyelashes would fall off if it wasn't sufficient. But now, under these heavy lights, I feel them sliding like, <laughs> like fridge magnets off an oily fridge door. 
but I've decided to style it out because it's an emergency episode, so it's good that I look like an emergency. Mine's also about hair. Uh, I'm a feminist, but the cameos, you know, on the app, the cameos that I'm doing to help raise money for Choose Love, I have done none because I have not had the correct makeup on to present someone with that video. I'll get it done. Just saying. I've taken a cameo video before now. If, if you don't know what a cameo is, it's uh, people who are in the public eye uh, make videos to say happy birthday to your sister or good luck to your gran or, you know, that kind of thing. And then usually they take the money for themselves. But Sindhu V and I are saintly human beings <laughs> who are better than those other people. So we give the money to choose love. Uh, I just didn't know about the app till now. Yeah, okay, fair uh, enough. Um, <laughs> yeah, basically this is how we're selling ourselves. Uh, our reward will be great in heaven. And I do mean the gay nightclub around the corner because <laughs> the guy there loves the guilty feminist and has bought a cameo from me, so I'm in for free forever. Um, um, I have taken a full video, watched it back, thought, oh no, and cancelled it and gone and put eyeliner on it again. That's true. Um, I'm a feminist, but when I had to do a very quick picture to advertise this show on Instagram, the first picture of me and Cindy V that came up was of us at a film premiere, my film premiere that Cindy was in. No need to go on about it. Um, stop it, you're embarrassing me. Yes, I did write a film and do a cameo in it. Cameo in it. Yes, that's right. I've understood the name of that app now. Um, and uh, the first picture was... So I thought, oh, I'll use that one because we looked so glamorous. I am in a slightly inappropriate dress to advertise this show because it's a really plunging neckline. I don't know if I can wear that dress again after the uh, lockdown because I didn't wear a bra for a year and a half. And I I really do believe that my breasts have responded to the lack of scaffolding. Uh, But at that time, just a bit of tit tape and, you know, shoulders back. And, uh, like, if I just stood like this with tit tape underneath, I was absolutely fine. I think I was anyway. I was probably kidding myself. Um, uh, But, anyway, I was so glamorous, that picture. So I popped that on Instagram thinking, yes. Was very, very pleased when a few people, inappropriately, given the show, said, nice rack. Um, (laughs) I thought, that's not right for this show. And also, yes, thank you. And now, because I've come like this, I feel like that was false advertising. And if anybody's come on the basis of that picture and wants their money back, I would totally understand it. I mean, the money's going to choose love, though, so don't be a cunt. I'm a feminist, but the other day when I was talking to my 88-year-old dad who said to me, darling, the way you're talking, I just want you to know, no matter what happens in your life, with your marriage, I will always be here to take care of you. I felt so happy. (laughs) That's nice. That's really nice. Because you can be a feminist, but it's nice to have someone else pay for shit. (laughs) Word. Word on the street. Live from 21 Soho in London, the Spontaneity Shop presents an emergency episode of The Guilty Feminist with me, Deborah Francis, my guest co-host, Cindy B, and our very special guests, Neil Afar, Hedayat, Hamasa, Hostani, Zarnash, Halabzai, and Arij Osman talking about Afghanistan. This is The Guilty Feminist, the podcast in which we explore our noble goals as 21st century feminists, our hypocrisies and insecurities which undermine them. It's getting more ridiculous as I go on, but there's nothing I can do at this point. I'd like to back the truck up. Can't. I'm Deborah Francis-White. With me is Cindy V. And we are doing an emergency episode about Afghanistan. 
Thank you so much, everyone, coming in at the last minute. There are some seats in the front row, and nothing bad happens in the front row of this comedy show. Um, now, we pack the top with some comedy, uh, so that because people listen to The Guilty Feminist because it's funny, and it doesn't seem like sad, sad, sad hour, um, where everything's traumatic, and it doesn't feel like you're doing your homework. Um, that is how we differ from women's hour. Um, we have, there'll be a number of jokes in this show, but we tend to pack those at the top. Once our guests come on, we might have a gear change, which you might notice. Uh, not that our guests, I've already talked to them, they're all funny, so they might make jokes. Uh, but the top, this is an emergency episode for Afghanistan, but one of the features of the Guilty Feminist is we do funny at the top. Uh, so for that, I have invited one of my very favourite Guilty Feminist co-pilots. It's the incredible Cindy B! <laughs> Oh, why don't you... Hold on, this... Is this my... Can I just say one thing? If you don't wear them to sleep, they're not pajamas. (laughs) Just saying. Sorry. But then why, when you walked in, did I say, oh, we're both in jumpsuits? Oh, no, you're in pajamas. Because that's what you call them. (laughs) Is pajamas an Indian word? Well, I mean, we have a word in Hindi and Urdu called pajama, but it's just the bottom. Oh. Yeah, it's just the bottom. And oh, I thought it was and an if I came in here with just the bottom, it would just be weird. Be like, what? Be we, like, could have charged, we could have charged more. Yeah, well, could have, it's could a have. fundraiser, Sindhu. Do you care about shoes love or not? I know. I've got... <laughs> okay, this is not normally how the Guilty Feminist goes. If you've not been here before, yeah. people don't normally chant, take it off. So, yeah. so yeah. early in the show, it's a feminist show. But uh, listen... You know, I think... I Look... The other day, my teenage daughter said to me something. Is it get out the nip, take out the nip? Free the nip. Free the nip. Yes. And, I, and I was like, what, what, what are you saying? And she said something, something, free the nip. And I was like, oh, free your nipples. And I was like, oh, is that why you're dressed like that? Uh, and she said, yes, because she knew before I said anything, she should, you know, because offense is the best form of defense. So, uh, yeah, her nips were very free. Um, listen, I, listen. So this I don't is mind that. Generation Z... They're going it's to free fine. the nip before they're done. You know what free nip is about? On Instagram, in fact, we are on Instagram Should Live now. You this? cannot take it off because Instagram will immediately block it. Because Instagram yeah. is, has some algorithm that it can see female nipples, I guess, because men have their tops off on Instagram. But I accidentally once post a free the nip shot. I didn't, well, I sort of, I say accidentally. <laughs> Someone came on the show naked. Who came on the show naked? Gina? Oh, Amanda Palmer, that's right. Amanda Palmer came on the show naked. I wasn't expecting it. She said she was going to, but I thought she was joking. (laughs) Um, I know she does that at rock concerts and stuff, but we were in the basement of a Waterstones. Now, (laughs) it's true. It was the Margaret Atwood book. This is true. And so it was a sort of book club type show. Margaret Atwood was upstairs. I mean, to be fair, Margaret Atwood would love it. She would love it. And I've been to many... I'm going to now have that in my book clubs. You've got to come in without your top on. Nothing. No, she had nothing on. Nothing on at all. No, nothing, no top, no bottom. Where was I? Where was I? I I think it's a different context in a stadium, though, to the basement of a Waterstones because everyone was like, oh, 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 oh. Because it was a bit light for it. Do you know what I mean? Anyway, afterwards... Out of solidarity, she posed with me with her banjo naked. So I just went like that to show one breast. 
And uh, Instagram uh, said no breasts. We want no breasts. They, yeah, they, they, uh, they, they immediately that nixed like it. like they clutched it, but they didn't. <laughs> that looks like they, they grabbed, clutched they it. They did to cover it. They clubbed, and they, and I thought, oh, something's gone wrong. So I reposted it because I didn't understand. Yeah, like, no, lady, uh, no. Yes, it, it was such an, it was such an immediate. Well, I just didn't, just so naive. Anyway, um, they said to me, if you post this again, you'll be off Instagram permanently, and you'll never be allowed back on. So I had to repost it with a sort of little sticker or something over the ah. nipple. Um, so when people say free, free the, nip, the nip, that's what's going so on. So Instagram Live for you. I don't you. think when my daughter, yeah, oh, do it, do I'm it, do kidding. It. I'm kidding. No, but when my daughter says that, it's not because of all this politics. She says that because she knows. Because you know, sometimes teenage girls wake up and their first thought is, "I'm going to fuck with my mom." <laughs> I, I swear, they just wake up and they're like, "Ah, oh, yeah, today's that day." And then they come in the kitchen, and then that mom is me. And then it all gets extremely grisly, and all the men in the house leave. They're like, they're just... Her brother leaves, my husband leaves, just like, no, no. My husband's texting me from... They had gone on holiday and uh, texting me about the girls and saying, can you call them? They're upstairs, and there seems to be a problem. <laughs> I'm like, you were in, in Denmark. I'm in England. You, they're up, you, you could... No, 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 there's a problem. Oh, wow. Yeah, because, wow. because they had had a huge... That Who had a here huge... has sisters that they can fight to the death? Me! Yeah. You can fight to the death with your sister, and it can sound like someone is getting murdered. And how... By the way, who here cries? Yeah. Yes. So they're fighting, they're crying, they're screaming. My husband is like, I, I'm going to leave and just leave them here, and you can call from England and manage them. So I was like, that's fine. So I called them, and I said, you know, your dad is very concerned, so keep it up. <laughs> Welcome to the mic she's already holding. It's the incredible Cindy B. Hello. Uh, thank you. I, I'm going to do very little because we have a great show and we have to get ahead and so on and so forth. Anyway, a lot of people have had this question in the last year and a half. How's your mental health? How's your mental health in lockdown? Sindhu, how was your mental health in lockdown? What did you do? I'll tell you how my mental health was in lockdown. My mental health was such that in the middle of lockdown, I started having girlfriend chat with my husband. <laughs> Do you understand what I'm saying? It's so extremely confusing for everybody, but I became desperate. I started, it was like kind of like a breakdown. You know, you just, you don't know what's reality anymore. So he was watching TV and I was reading and then I turned to him and I said, did you ever think you would marry someone with such long legs? <laughs> because isn't that a great girl question? You have thought about that, right? Yeah, of course you have. And my husband, because he also wants to survive lockdown, you know, he did this thing where he was like, um, no. I looked at him and I thought, what? I fully expect this man after 23 years of marriage to be like, I have never fucking thought about that in my life. And that is my cue to question the entire project of my marriage. Say things like, my mother was right, I should not have married a foreigner. You know, stuff like that. Anyway, uh, because in India we call all white people foreigners, just, just, just to let you know. And the reason, people say, well, why do you do that? It's because when you came, you were foreigners. We were like, well, who are you? Why are you here? You're from a foreign land. And they were like, man, now we own this land. Anyway, so that is what my husband should have said, and I should have been like, I knew it, and that. but he didn't. He was like, yeah, no, I know. No, I didn't. And I was like, oh. So then, mental health. 
I could have left it, been like, this is great, but I took it up one gear. <laughs> because I thought, let's really see what's going on here. So I said to him, yeah, well, of course, you know, because after all, you're Danish, which is a meaningless follow-up statement. <laughs> Except it's meaningless only to the untrained ear. Because to the trained ear, which is usually your best girlfriend, pal, that question obviously means, because you're Danish, you're from a race that's very tall. And if you're very tall, you've definitely thought about the height of your spouse. Because if you're from a very tall race, you don't want to marry someone very short. That would be weird. Or maybe you don't want to marry someone so tall. That would be weird. You've thought a lot about your spouse and his or her legs. I was extremely tall in India. Do you understand what I'm saying? <laughs> extremely tall. I remember my aunt said to my mother, Oh, too bad we cannot give her to circus. <laughs> I remember that. Okay? I always thought about the height of my spouse. So obviously when I said, oh, you know, because you're Danish, but I thought his ear is untrained, he's going to be like, what? But my husband like was, looked at me and said, I know, right? I was like, what? Who is, what is happening? So then I thought I have to just one more gear. Please, please, just one more gear, you know? Because that's how self-sabotage works. <laughs> so just one more gear. So I took it up the last gear and I said, yeah, because I mean, after all, I am Indian, which is code for I should be so much shorter. And that should, you know, give him something. He has to have analyzed this. So I said, you know, because I'm Indian. And he said, you know, it's funny. I, you're right. I met so many Indians through you. And like, yeah. <laughs> and I was like, I'm so happy I'm married to him. <laughs> and I felt much better. Um, yeah. Because I think that, you know, you, you shouldn't, if you want to stay sane, you have to be careful what you talk to your spouse about. Um, and you certainly shouldn't start doing girlfriend chat with your spouse, but I succeeded. And I can tell you the trick, and then we're going to finish the stand-up bit because we've got to hurry. I think here's how my husband has managed it. In lockdown, my husband came up with this technique of I would ask him a question in which he had zero fucking interest, right? Zero. <laughs> and he would look at me, and you could see that he would reach into the back of his head, not actually, but he would reach, and he would think, what is the minimum effort I can exert? <laughs> to show her that I have a modicum of interest in what she's saying, and then just say that sentence, she will piss off, I'll go back to Netflix. <laughs> and he did that every single time. I had a crazy haircut in lo- just before lockdown, crazy haircut, not good for me. Like, my hair is usually long, it was crazy. I came home, I asked my kids, what do you think of my hair? And my daughter was like, oh my God, you look like Karen. <laughs> and I didn't know who a Karen was, and I was like, who's a Karen? And my son said, you know, the kind of woman who complains about the salad dressing at ZZ's. <laughs> I was like, this is very specific. Do we, do we know this bitch? Who is this? Now I know who a Karen is. And, you know, I don't mind that my kids called me that because it shows I've raised them to not see color. Anyway. So, yeah. So, but then I went to my husband and I said to him, what do you think of my hairstyle? Which was the worst hairstyle I've ever had. I said, so what do you think of my hair? And he looked at me and you could see... And he said, yes... And I was like, yes. And then he went, very much. And that was that. Anyway, you guys are in for a treat this afternoon. Thank you so much for coming up. Hello, Guilty Feminists. Thank you for joining us for this very special episode. Just to let you know that I'm on Cameo at the moment for Choose Love, 
There are not many videos in the series left, so book me if you'd like me to send a special message to a friend or family member or for yourself. Also, lots of other wonderful people are on there as well. Juliet Stevenson, Olivia Coleman, Cindy V. Check out everybody who's supporting Choose Love at the moment for those who are fleeing the Taliban. It was truly remarkable to have such a wonderful audience back uh, for the emergency episode. Thank you to all who came out. And please join us on the 10th and 11th of September live on the South Bank at Queen Elizabeth Hall. On the 10th of September, my co-host is Susan Wacoma. And our guest is Nina Conti, who's coming along with Monkey. And Jess Robinson is performing some extremely uplifting feminist music for us. It'll be like Feminist Church. On the 11th of September, uh, my guest co-host is Kima Bob herself. And Susie Ruffle is coming along to do some stand-up comedy for us. We have She Drew the Gun, who've never been on before, the amazing band, giving us feminist uplift music. And we also have some very special guests talking about the rights raid and uh, looking at our rights as LGBTQ people and also uh, the policing bill, border control, and having some important conversations about where we are and what we can do next. Um, I really hope to see you at either or both of those shows. Please come and be with us. God, it's nice to be back in the same room again. It makes so much difference and I think makes our podcast really the best of what it is. As always, for tickets for our live show, you can find the link at guiltyfeminist.com under live shows. Now back to the podcast. And now, please put your hands together, start clapping, start cheering, go wild for the very funny Deborah Francis Thank you. I have to do new stand-up each time because that's how podcast works. I didn't think it through when I started it. Um, so I wrote this this afternoon on my show notes um, here. So uh, that is why I have this, just to explain myself before I begin. And the reason that I need to do that is I was adopted. Um, I, I didn't think it had affected me. I really, really didn't. But one time I worked, it sort of slightly twigged once. One time I worked uh, with, this is even more poignant now, with a baby gurgling underneath, isn't it? Um, I, that's, I've asked for that. Um, uh, one time I worked with a Lebanese French film director who uh, just out of the blue said, what age were you when you were adopted? And I said, how did you know I was adopted? And he just went, I know. How old were you? And I said, 10 days. And he said, and where were you for that time? And I said, just in the hospital and looked after by whatever nurse was on the shift. And he went, mm, that is why you like attention and that is why you like food. <laughs> now, at the time, I thought rude, rude, accurate, but rude. But this week, I watched an academic lecture on YouTube by an adoption and addiction expert called Paul Sunderland, and he confirmed what the director said. Rude, also another rude man. Um, it was a, I mean, he wasn't specifically talking about me, but it felt like he was. Uh, it was a long lecture, but the main thing I took from it is if you're adopted at birth, you're probably very clever. Um, you can watch the lecture, but you don't need to. That's all you really need to know. <laughs> Enormous, great, big fuck-off brain. It's because the first thing that happens is a trauma, and so you get a shot of cortisol to the brain, which is a growth hormone, and so you have a great, big, huge, throbbing brain. Um, <laughs> That's true. It is a trauma because inside the womb, you're hearing your mother's cadences and you're feeding off her like some awful parasite. (laughs) 
it is awful. It's quite science fiction. But uh, you're, you're waiting to meet her. And if you are ripped away, uh, that is a trauma. And then you're like, oh, God, it's a different nurse every two hours. Um, now, there are a few other things of use apart from the enormous size of my incredibly clever brain. Uh, so I'll throw them in. Sometimes, due to your huge throbbing brain, you have big visions about what you can do in the world. But then you sabotage yourself because inside you think, A, I'm not worthy because the first thing that happened was that your carer gave you away. And B, bad things always happen because the first thing that happened was that your carer gave you away. (laughs) So here you are now today with your big brain, not writing your screenplay that you've already been paid to write. (laughs) Shut up. That's you. That's not me. Shut up. You're adopted. I'm not adopted. Shut up. (laughs) I hate you. You're not my real mother anyway. The next thing I learned from the academic lecture uh, was that there's a Chinese proverb that says the beginning of wisdom is calling things by their proper name. And adoption doesn't really describe what happens. It needs to be called relinquishment and adoption because the big trauma is in the relinquishment. Now, uh, the cortex, which is the rational part of your brain that makes the decision to get here today on time and where are we going to sit, all of that's done with your cortex. And before you're three, that's not online. And that is why... It is so pleasant to brunch with a two-year-old. <laughs> yes, I use brunch as a verb. Don't judge me. I'm adopted. I'm traumatized. I brunch. Um, now, the limbic brain is where the emotions happen. And that is online from the beginning. And that is why it is so pleasant to brunch with a two-year-old. Um, the reptilian part of the brain is the one that we share with reptiles. And that is why it is so pleasant to brunch with a snake. The limbic brain sends a message uh, to the reptilian brain. Hey, we need to mobilize. We need to fight. And the reptile is obviously the one that goes... Um, And it's very good that the limbic system sends stress hormones to the reptilian brain um, if there's a tiger coming, because that's what makes us run fast. But uh, if you are a baby, well, babies famously are terrible at fighting and fleeing. And that's why they're so cute. So we will fight and flee on their behalf. In that case, if you've been given away first thing, everything about your brain is going, run, 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 run. But your legs are going, I'm a fucking baby. (laughs) Fight, 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 fight. With these fists, these adorable fists that all they want to do is cling on to mummy's finger. Um, No, you've got to punch a tiger with them. And then that's how you get traumatized as an adoptee. So a lot of adopted children comfort eat sugar. And um, shut up, you're adopted. Um, So uh, we are always on edge because the first thing that happened to us is we were abandoned. So every single day when we leave the house, we think, I might get abandoned at a bus stop, Um, even though we're on our own. uh, There's a feeling like, what if I just leave myself at this bus stop? Uh, I might leave myself on the bus. This is what's going on, apparently, in all these weird parts of the brain that we're not... Uh, cognizant of. This is why I haven't written my screenplay. If you were listening to this and I owe you one. Um, Hello on Instagram Live. Any producers waiting for any material from me? It's because I'm adopted. Are you going to have a go at me? Are you? I'm traumatized. (laughs) P-personality trauma, pre-verbal trauma. Now, the reptilian system is going, who have we got to fight? Who have we got to fight? Probably a tiger. Why have we been about it? Get ready to fight. So the limbic system, which is the emotional system, It starts to uh, eat cake um, (laughs) because it is literally sending a message to the reptile brain, stand down, dude, it's fine. We're eating cake so we can't be being chased by a tiger. (laughs) 
That is genuinely what's going on when you comfort eat. No one would stop for a brownie when in grave danger. I mean, how good is the brownie, though? Because I can eat and run. Um, I've run and eaten before. Who hasn't run and eaten a brownie? Anyway, um, but this is the idea of it. This is what your brain is trying to do. Basically, top line, if you're having a snack, you can't be under attack. I made up that rhyme with my overdeveloped cortex. Huge, throbbing cortex. Since I found that out this week, when I get hungry, I ask myself, is this my reptile brain looking for comfort or am I hungry? And sometimes I realise it's my inner snake and I'm like, fuck you, buddy, because I'm really phobic of snakes. I hate the idea of a snake in my brain. It's really upsetting me. But I have discovered I'm not hungry as much as I think I am. In fact, I am trying to comfort my limbic system. So my amygdala is over alert um, now, the amygdala is your inner, you're the smoke alarm in your brain that tells you, hey, you're, something's gone wrong, there's a fire. But my amygdala goes off just when I'm making toast. Um, that's the problem. So basically, what I learned from the lecture is the reason I'm a stand-up comic is I'm looking for you to love me unconditionally. No signs of that. Um, <laughs> one whoop. Thank you very much. I'll be going home with you, whoever you are. Don't leave me on a bus stop, please. Don't abandon me on the bus. Um, And I'm trying to regulate my cortisol by overworking my adrenaline. A lot of adopted people swim with sharks. I do this. You're the sharks. Enjoy. Um, Also, early bonding is very, very, very important. And there's a whole thing about attachment theory. We don't have time to go through here, but you get the idea. Babies and small children are designed to attach themselves to their carer. That's why they cry so much, is they're going, notice me, notice me. All mammals do it. And interestingly, people who were given into care... Um, It's a different but similar trauma than being adopted at birth because uh, sometimes you can remember it. But uh, also, interestingly, we see a lot of the same issues with people who were early boarders. If you were sent to boarding school or six or seven or eight, teenage, fine, it's different. You you might not have enjoyed it, but it's different. It's not the same kind of trauma. But six, seven or eight, it's a similar trauma, and we see a lot of similar signs. In fact, it can be even worse because you're told it's a privilege to go to boarding school. It's not a privilege to go into care. And I did my research on how many people in the cabinet were in care. (laughs) None. No no former prime ministers who were in care as children. That's interesting, isn't it? He said the biggest mental health problem we see with adoptees is religiosity. And that he's not having a go at anyone with faith at all. He's saying if you're in a fundamental religion and religion, you know, it's like religious mania, it takes over your life. And I was like, oh, my God. I wonder if that was why I was so captured by the Jehovah's Witnesses. Um, By the way, this this is a cult. Um, uh, Lock the doors. Um, (laughs) So easy to start a cult accidentally if you've been in one. Um, uh, All of this stuff, it just really made me think about the trauma because one thing he said, and I've heard this before, is that when they look at the trauma of children who are refugees, if they are with a primary care, if their attachments are not disrupted, then the trauma is a lot less. Of course, there is still trauma, But the worst thing you can do is to have your attachments disrupted as a child. So this week, when I saw images of mothers literally passing their babies over fences to British soldiers to get them away from the Taliban, you think, how desperate must that mother be? How traumatised will that baby be? Because my birth mother knew she was going to give me away. She was in a safe place. It was all planned. You know, there was someone to take me. And, my, my, you know, my parents are amazing and all of that. I've met my birth mother. Imagine being given over a fence and you would never even know 
who had given you away, uh, imagine the trauma of the mother. And so it was then I was like, we have to do an emergency episode this weekend. And with that, I would like to welcome our first guest. Our first guest is the CEO and co-founder of Refugee Trauma Initiative, an organization which supports refugees and frontline workers to deal with stress and trauma. She has worked in Pakistan on the Turkish-Syrian border, in Calais and Greece on emergency response. She's a peace advocate. She has advocated for a more inclusive peace deal in Afghanistan, and she's a writer. Her organization is a partner of Choose Love, and this is a fundraiser for Choose Love today. Please welcome Zalasht Halimzai. So, Zalasht, can you give us a potted history of Afghanistan and why the Taliban... You're Afghan yourself? I am. And why the Taliban came into existence in the first place? So, I don't feel particularly funny, but I'm really relieved you guys keep saying fuck, because uh, this is one of those situations. Oh, yeah, please Um, swear away. We're going into a gear change now. No one's expecting you to be funny about the history of Afghanistan. um, So... My, I was born in Afghanistan, and my family left in 92 under very similar circumstances. And that was after an 11-year-old war in which the U.S. and the U.K. and a bunch of other countries armed militia groups uh, to fight against the Soviet Union. And in the 90s, after the Soviet Union collapsed, uh, the Afghans kind of breathed a sigh of relief thinking that the international community was going to come and we were going to have an inclusive government, an election, and instead there was a total near withdrawal of Western interests from Afghanistan, and it collapsed into what they called a civil war, but in fact it wasn't. Um, This is something that's being talked about right now a lot, that Afghanistan is going to go into civil war. It's not. It's a proxy war. Every single neighbor is involved. The U.S. has been arming a bunch of groups all these years, it's not a civil war, it's a proxy war. After that happened, the country plunged into total darkness and lawlessness, and the Taliban came out out of that context. Right. So if Britain and America hadn't invaded decades ago, there would be no Taliban? Well, if there was no Cold War, there would be no Taliban. Okay. And can I just ask a question? So you know, when you look at trying to give responsibility, because that sometimes makes people feel like they know what's going on. They can say, it was that fault, that fault. The Cold War is not something we can look at and say, well, if there wasn't no Cold, if there wasn't a Cold War, lots of things would be different, right? So I feel like there, if there wasn't a Cold War, there'd be no Taliban, maybe. But there was a little bit more responsibility in the 90s on the part of the West to not just take off, right? They just, because Russia was gone, they didn't care. Absolutely. What's happening in Afghanistan, I feel, is another, you know, collective delusion that's being cracked at the moment. You know, we've gone through COVID that kind of cracked our delusions about we're all in it together. We went through BLM that cracked our delusion about race. What's happening in Afghanistan is, you know, something that's been going on for a long time. It's tied up with colonialism. It's tied up with white supremacy. It's tied up with invading other countries without any kind of accountability. And in Afghanistan, that's been happening over and over and over again. The U.S. and NATO allies have switched sides 
constantly, arming groups constantly. And right now, with the withdrawal of U.S. troops, there is you know, a ton of weapons that are now again being handed over to the Taliban. I don't know if you've guys seen images of the Taliban with these really quite swanky M16 you know, automatic machine guns. Those are U.S. weapons. So there has to be some sort of accountability. And I want to say one thing, because on the way here I was thinking about you know, how do I explain to the British public why this matters to all of us. And what I thought is that, you know, it's the same people that right now are not evacuating people that worked alongside British troops in Afghanistan. These are the same people that are responsible for 150,000 COVID deaths. These are the same people that will not respond to a climate emergency. They're the same people that send troops to another country, but when the troops come back, don't provide mental health care. It's the same people. And the thing that terrifies those people is that if we start connecting those dots Mm. and start acting as a collective and start recognizing that the suffering of Afghan women and Afghan children, Afghan men, is very much tied up to everything that's happening to all of us. So, Zalash, can you tell us about the Refugee Trauma Initiative and what you're currently doing with Afghan people, presumably focusing on women and children, but we've seen some horrible images of young men falling off planes. And, you know, could you please tell us a little bit about what you're doing? Sure. So I I set up an organization about five and a half years ago in response to the Syrian refugee crisis. And everything that you spoke at the beginning of this program about trauma, it's what we work on. Because, you know, when you experience violence in the way that Syrians or Afghans right now are experiencing, you really need support to be able to come back to real life and to reconcile yourself as a human being with what's happened to you. And so my organization is preparing to support Afghan women and children who will be arriving in Europe, hopefully, if they can get on a plane. Um, I'm also partnering with Choose Love to call on the British public to write to their MPs, to your MPs, um, to ask to evacuate women and children and families, and particularly people who have collaborated with the British government for the last 20 years, to evacuate them now. There's only 11 days left. Um, The deadline to take out the troops is on the 31st of August, so we're really running against time. And we're trying to mobilize communities here and in the U.S. to um, protest, to write to their representatives, to make as much noise as humanly possible about the disaster that's unfolding in Afghanistan. What would you most like the American and British governments to do right now? The most important thing that needs to happen right now is for civilian evacuations to take place. That's the most important thing. A lot of what's happened wasn't inevitable, but there's, it's too late to do some of the things, as awful as that is. So what we need to do is, first of all, make sure that people who are really at risk, that means human rights activists, women's rights activists, journalists, artists, people who worked alongside the British and the U.S. troops, that they're out as soon as possible. And that requires coordination of all the international agencies on the ground, the U.S. and the U.K. Army to do that. And it requires political will. There needs to be a decision to do that. And then a continued support to Afghanistan. This is a 42-year-old disaster that is 
going to keep going. So we need to keep highlighting what's happening. We need to keep supporting organizations that are working on the ground. And, you know, I don't even want to mention this because it genuinely makes me feel awful even thinking about it, but governments are gathering to recognize the Taliban as a legitimate government. I know. And that is just... It's, it's, I can't tell you the grief that I feel just thinking about the fact that a misogynist, racist group that governs with force and power mm-hmm. is going to be the legitimate government of Afghanistan that we're going to be dealing with now. And we've heard horrible stories about 12-year-old girls being taken away and things like that. You just go, what, who do... Nobody wants to be left there. Like, you can't get everyone out. How, like... What can we do after this window closes and they've got as many people out as there is political will for and as, as we can campaign for? What can we do then? I mean, I think it's a question of the sequence of things that need to be done. Right now, it's the evacuations of people that are most vulnerable and need to get out. That's I, the most important thing. I was reading about some gay people trying to get out today, like how awful it's going to be if any queer people get left Absolutely. I mean, it's all minority communities, all minority communities. I mean, one of the things that happened in the 90s is that the Taliban and the other militia groups killed the entire intellectual class. So that means writers. That means anyone who can raise their voice for, you know, to resist them. That's, again, is at stake. And it's Afghanistan is going through a trauma that's been happening to us over and over again. Mm-hmm. It's, it's I, genuinely, like, I've been in a state of shock, grief, and trauma for the last two weeks. And it's, you know, everyone who's been involved in Afghanistan for the last, since the 70s, is accountable for this. Okay, so how can we help you giving to choose love so that you have uh, funds to resource people who are now fleeing as refugees? Did you have resources when you left? No. I mean, my family left, you know, and... and 6 a.m. in the morning with nothing. Um, you know, somebody was asking me the other day, can we have a picture of you guys in Afghanistan? And I said, no, we left all of that mm-hmm. behind. Um, yes, so what you can do is give to Choose Love, where I'm working with them, and, you know, they're working with other Afghan leaders to get the money where it's most needed. Write to your MP. 20,000 refugees, it's not enough. How it, many should we be taking? I don't think that's the right question to ask. 20,000 doesn't cover the number of people that directly work with the British government. So, you know, I'm not going to sit here and do the math on the numbers. I think we need to take as many people as we can. Um, as I listened to her describe the history, I grew up in India, and my memory of Afghanistan, which is 70s and 80s, was a soup. Kabul was super liberal. My parents were like, oh, it's like Paris. They really did feel mm-hmm. that way. And we had doctors and professors who were women who were Afga- from Afghanistan. They were friends of my mother. And I feel like now the picture of Afghanistan in the Western media, and I think for many people who've started thinking about Afghanistan in the last 15 years, is some war-wrecked, you know, all the women want to cover their head. It's not about Islam. It's about, and I think we spoke about this before, it's about taking an entire culture and painting it in colors that served America and America's wars and the Cold War and all that stuff. And I feel like this country has become trapped in this imagery. And that to watch that happen is, 
you know, it's really, I feel grief, and I'm not even Afghani, but I feel grief for women. I do. I feel grief for women because this is a systematic takedown of Afghani women and it will reverberate for generations. And that's what I think we need to try and help with in every small way. Do you know, I'm going to get those cameos done. I'm going to get them done. But I mean that. I mean, and I hope each of you as you leave here today can ask them one way in which you can help because that will matter. Well, I think the, it will. I agree yeah. with you, Sindhu. And, and that leads us on to our next guests. So uh, our next guest today, uh, one is a journalist and presenter whose work focuses on environmental issues and cultural upheaval. Born in Afghanistan, she came to Britain as a refugee, which has shaped her work, creating a unique point of view and a passion for telling stories, uh, especially of fringe and marginalized communities. Please welcome Neil Afar Hedayat. <laughs> She is joined by a British-Afghan model and mental health advocate who is a former Miss England. She and her family moved to the UK in 97 as refugees. In light of what's happening in Afghanistan, she's using her platform to raise awareness and campaign for the people of Afghanistan. Please welcome Hamasa Kohistani. You guys heard what Zanish said, and she gave us a lot of the political context for this. Neela Far, you did a brilliant documentary about the Taliban. Yes. When you were much younger, you were working for Newsround. I mean, you seem so young now. It seems strange to me that um, you made anything when you were younger, but... Thank you, The Ordinary. It works. Uh, (laughs) I'm a feminist, but... Yes, exactly. uh, Your first thing was a plug for The Ordinary skincare. (laughs) Not sponsored, not sponsored, yet. Um, Okay, not... Well, listen, she's a brand ambassador. Instagram Live, get on that. Yeah, I just, journalism and speaking and talking to the public is what I do um, a lot of. And I I made my first documentary when I was 21 years old for BBC Three called Women, Weddings, War and Me. And I took everyone. I know, I know, right? It is amazing face cream. I'll send you the recommend. But, um, and then I I, hosted Newsround and I wanted to teach the British young people what Afghanistan was because they'd heard their mothers and fathers mention it constantly, but they probably thought... Where is that? Is, is that New Jersey? Where is that? The Isle of Man? I don't know. So I, I really wanted them to connect. So we made a film about young Afghan kids who were born at a time when the Taliban didn't exist. This like little sweet moment in, in the history of Afghanistan in 42 years where hope was allowed. You were allowed to think about things like skating and dressing up and how exactly do you want to wear your hijab the coolest way? Those things were flourishing. So... My journalism and my work and my documentaries have always taken me to Afghanistan, but my commitment now, since last Sunday when all of this started to happen (laughs) to us, um, is to tell the British public why this is about us and our history, because I went on Question Time this week, and the response I got from the British people was overwhelming. A sense of collective understanding, compassion, a, a sense of justice knowing that something wrong's been done to someone here and vulnerable people have been used and exploited. And every night, the three of us, I can promise you as three Afghan women, go to bed and it sucks. Really, it does. And every morning we wake up and we see the fresh pictures of 
of all this stuff and the chaos. And then we might get a text from a friend, or in my case, an, an ex-teacher, Emma Kell, whoop, I know you listen to this podcast. Um, <laughs> or we might get a text from a fan or a friend, and all of a sudden we're like, it doesn't hurt your throat quite as much. It doesn't, you know, that bolus, you can feel like you could swallow it a little bit. So I just, standing with these two incredible women next to me, it's just important to know that in the last 20 years, Afghanistan has changed, but so has the British public. So has the international community. We have grown up. We have become mature. We understand now what our responsibilities are to these far-off places, not in Jersey. Um, so that's what I think has been really incredible. Thank you. Hamasa, can you please talk to us as a mental health advocate about how you feel things are going right now for women and children? And like I was saying before, that they, you just see these images of babies being passed over fences, and someone said that they're like babies were being thrown over razor wire fences, and just yes. like, what would a mother have to do to throw? You know, and to the British, honestly, who've been a colonial force, and you've only ever seen them in uniform. You know, what what must be going on? You know, and what what is the mental health toll? Um, I'm in touch with a lot of the Afghan women because they message me directly. So I'm talking to girls and women, life in life, like as they go. And they're messaging me pictures of sitting in basements right now. Three sisters haven't left the basement for two weeks because they're too scared to come out. I'm getting girls that are messaging me saying that we've run away because they killed my father, they killed my uncle... It was my mother and my three sisters, so they burned our house down. We're homeless. We don't have anywhere to go. And now we're just sitting on the borders of Iran. What you guys see in the media is a very filtered version of what's happening in Afghanistan. And I think that what people need to ask when they come across pro-Taliban pages or articles in the press... Um, that are showing... Taliban 2.0. Yeah, like like the change, like reformed Taliban. Please take a moment to speak to an Afghan and let them tell you what's really going on on the ground. Because what you guys are seeing is only a snippet of what we get to see and we're exposed um, to. So that's what you guys need to remember, that this whole propaganda that's going on now in the press and what people are dealing with 20 years is not that long ago. So our people have still have that trauma with them. Our daughters, our girls have grown up watching their women being lashed 100 times in public because their heels made noise on the pavement. So even though she was in a full burqa, the last time Taliban were in power, if your heels made noise on the pavement or your ankles showed, you would get 100 lashes. These women are so malnourished, they wouldn't withstand a hundred lashes. Who can withstand a hundred lashes? And all the men are laughing, pointing guns at her. There are pictures of that that happened in our stadium the last time the Taliban were around. That's what our people are fearing. Because we know that whatever the Taliban are saying to the international committees now, and whatever these press uh, outlets are posting and telling that there's this new changed Taliban, that's not the case. It's and, only a matter of time. But can, can I just add to that? Just, uh, there's a flip side to it. The three of us shouldn't be here, but we are resilient, strong women that have come here to speak on behalf of those that cannot. Afghanistan is full of like badass women like us. Like we're cool, right? <laughs> like we're, we're amazing women, and I'm proud of who I've become. I'm proud of my British Afghan identity. Both sides of it, with all its shitty baggage. I mean, it's it's, it's awful. <laughs> But, but 
But Afghanistan is chock-a-block with women like us. And I think that's, that's something... You know, a couple of days ago, Deborah and Sindhu and everyone, like, I saw this image. Huh, no. Give me one minute. I'm fine. I'm fine, right? Yeah. You're fine. You're fine. fine. You've got I'm this. Fine. You're fine. A couple of days this. ago, there was an image of four women. Two days after the Taliban took control, there was an image of four or five women standing with little A4 sheets of paper in which they said women's rights, justice for us, in front of the Taliban. Oh, Can you, like, I, 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 I can't, I couldn't breathe watching it because I knew what they were risking. It's more than their lives. It's the lives of their families, 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 family. And yet it was important enough to stand and do so. There are protests and there are people going out holding the, the national flag of Afghanistan and chanting freedom and justice. We want freedom and justice. You can't kill that. And also, to add to your point, the same way that the British public has changed in the past 20 years, so have the Afghan public and Afghan women, they're not those women that they were the first time Taliban came. All they need is a little bit of encouragement and support because they're doing things that... A lot of encouragement and support, like a lot, like state level. We we wouldn't even dream of women doing what they were doing, as you're saying, or some of the other girls that are speaking up now, they are speaking up, they are making noise because they've also changed. They have the social media platform. They have people like us who are here today making their voices amplified and letting the world hear. So they know that they have advocates out there. And the more we can come together and show them that and give them that hope, the more they can then fight their own battles. I just wanted to add two things, if, the, if I may. Um, the first one is that it's been overwhelming to get messages of encouragement for Afghan women. It's been absolutely overwhelming, and I'm getting, you know, it's, it's exactly what we need at a time like this. We need solidarity. But I just want to say something about what's happening. Afghan women don't need saving. We do not need saving. We need protection from violence. The same way that people here, everyone here needs state protection to leave their home and jog in a park and know that they can do that without the fear of violence. Yes. That's what Afghan women need. They have done so much to fight for their rights for the last 40 years. And as far as I know, and I could be wrong, no suffragette has ever been beheaded or stoned for fighting for their rights. Afghan women have, and they do it every single day. So nobody needs saving. We just need to stop but the they, violence. But there's more than that. When I went to Afghanistan in 2007, 2008, I met prosecutors who were putting bad people in jail, like these badass prosecutors. I met judges. I met female journalists who were going out and doing the reporting that is so vital. I met people in the bureaucratic system, civil service. I met models. I went to Afghanistan. I went and met the Afghan pop stars that were icons of their generation. No, you don't know any of them. But, but these, that's what we're speaking about. We're exactly. We're not asking for, um, for... Solidarity doesn't come from a place of above and below. It's an equality. It's equal. We want solidarity. We want respect that's mutual and help that's mutual. Yeah. Um, just, just, sorry, just no, one more must. thing, because it's super important. 
I know we're talking about women and that's really important, but Afghan men deserve the same sort of protection. I have three brothers and I don't think my life is worth more than theirs. And just to put in context, 70,000 men have died fighting the Taliban last 20 years in Afghanistan. So I, I think it's about the Afghan people. Of course, women deserve the respect and protection and all that because... But sometimes they do it from their own family. I think we disagree on this quite fundamentally. I hate all men. Um, <laughs> I hate my dad. I hate my brother. I hate my boyfriend. I hate all men. I think all men are trash with, with respect. Like, I do. I'm sorry. I do. Because... because and, I, and I only need to look at my own family in which my own family would be like, don't, don't wear dress... Like, who's going to tell... I'm 33-year-old woman in my own house. Why are you 33? <laughs> Yes, darling. Oh my God, that is but actually. Like, but but Af- listen, me. Afghanistan. <laughs> Afghanistan has its own set of problems. It's not the worst thing that's been said on this panel, but it's not. It's. <laughs> well, I don't know. I don't know. I would debate um, that. Sorry. Um, you have the drive and the value set of a Gen Z, although you are a millennial. Yes. I'm I'm Gen X, so I'm sort of. I, but I'm. You're Gen X. But I'm more millennial Gen Z in spirit because of the podcast. So, uh, it's true, it's true. What am I? You're you're straight down the line, Gen X. (laughs) You are raising Gen Z, so you have no time for these lily-livered millennial values. (laughs) I know you well. Okay, fine. Um, It's... (laughs) And I love that there is this sort of debate and disagreement amongst women. We're not all one thing, and all Afghan women are not a monolithic group. I am very much of the, I, I think it's the power structures. I don't think it's yes. men. Yes. It's the power structures. It's Men are fucked as well and given a really horrible deal. I know exactly what you're saying in terms of uh, power abuse and control and can dynamics. I, can I give an example of why I said it? It's yeah. really important. So, for example, a lot has been said about women not being able to go back to work. Um, so, people, women being shooed away from their offices or their place of work, or if they're journalists, mm-hmm. being told not to come in and do the reporting. It's the studio manager that's telling them to do that. It's their fathers. It's the, it's the guard men because they're all terrorized in the same way. Mm-hmm. That, that, that Taliban mentality seeps into everyone. So if you're um, the editor of a news program and, and your anchor is this incredibly talented young woman, you are going to say to her, I love you, I respect you, but you can't come in here because they will come. Mm-hmm. And when they come, they'll shut us all down. So it is a duality that needs to be addressed. It's not yeah. a one-way thing. The Taliban are not... They're, they're patriarchs. That's what they are. They are a group of men that want to enforce their But laws. you're asking for solidarity from Afghan men. And, and, re- and revolution from Afghan men. Yes, revolution. Revolution. Um, can I, I'm just going to say three things. I'm going to say three whole things. One is, um, I moved in the 90s, like these three young ladies. Uh, I moved here, but not for the same reasons. I just came to study and I got a scholarship and then I didn't have to get married. So this guy my mom picked. I was like, I'll go study and come back. And then, of course, here I am. But um, it's always been difficult for me to figure out why... When countries, when women in other countries need help, women in the West think of saving them. I've never understood that because I've sort of in between. I've never needed saving or help, but I'm also not Western. So you know what I mean? So I did need, I, I was a bursary girl. Let's put it that way. I was. I got a scholarship to study here. And the only way that I can explain it, and I'm not saying that you guys don't get it, but it's important on this because you said that, is if you had a friend, and you've all had friends at school who needed to borrow some money on the day, it didn't make you better than her. So if you do think that I'm going to give money or I'm going to give, you know, because Afghani women are your friends. 
Think of it like that, and you will never make that mistake. One thing. Second thing is, I hope that if nothing else, because you know everyone's means are different, you can at least talk to five people, right? Talk to five people and ask them to speak to five people about some of the things you've heard here. It will make a difference. It does make a difference, and it can be so overwhelming to hear what governments have to do. And listen, when we rise up, they have to listen. And the way you make them listen is you get the information out there. And I was going to say a third thing, and I fucking forgot what it was. <laughs> It'll come back to you. Yeah, it will. But anyway, those um, are the two things. While you think of that, could I ask you, conscious of time, is there anything you came to say today that you didn't get to say, firstly? Yes. <laughs> I would love to ask you guys that at this point, I think we know that there won't be any uh, military interference in Afghanistan. So the Taliban are probably here to stay for a little bit. So the best thing to do and what we're asking you guys to do and how you can help the people of Afghanistan is by trying to leverage, pressure, uh, force your government, speak to them that international human rights gets involved and that we have more rights for our people, especially the women, because they're the more vulnerable ones. That's why they need a little bit more protection. That's why I think we're so keen on talking about women in particular. But having said that, the collective of the Afghan, like collective consciousness of the Afghan people, is that we've been forgotten, we've been left behind, we're abandoned, and nobody cares. So I think that's what we need to do. We need to get some sort of coalition or some sort of human rights, and our governments need to put pressure and put leverage on the Taliban so that they could stick to what they're actually saying. Because we know they're not going to do that. Mm-hmm. They are not going to stick to everything that they've been saying so far. That's all propaganda. We've learned, we've learned our lesson, and that should be a lesson to the world. Like, we've been screaming about this for weeks. We got dismissed. We're screaming about it again for weeks. We're letting you, all of you guys know that what you're seeing in the news is only tip of the iceberg. It's a lot worse than what it is. We need to put uh, pressure on the governments internationally. The only thing I would add is that the collective trauma of the diaspora right? So that's us. Those of us who are, were born, we were all born in Afghanistan, who aren't there anymore, or the children of people that were born in Afghanistan, the diaspora, it is unfathomable how traumatizing all this is. It is un, I can't express to you, sat in between these two, the sadness, like the drip, drip, drip of the sadness day by day. So I say to the diaspora, any Afghans watching or anyone else who gets this, if you're Syrian, if you're Kashmiri, if you are Kurd or whatever you might be, love one another, hug one another, be patient with one another. No one's got the solution but a little bit of kindness, like the way these two have shown me today. Mm-hmm. Like, it just has lifted my mood. So mm-hmm. be kind to one another. Where can we watch your documentary? What's it called? Uh, you can watch it on, I think, the internet. Just look for Nelva Hedayat Newsround, and it's called The Kids of Kabul. The documentary that I made for the BBC is called Women, Weddings, War and Me. But you guys should all just check out my journalism generally, because I do more than just be Afghan. Okay. Zalesh, is there anything else we can do for you, or any links you want us to look at, anything at all? The campaign that we're running with Choose Love is about an MP action, so writing to your MP right now to ask to evacuate vulnerable Afghans is a really important thing that you can do, and obviously keep donating. The money will go to Afghan refugees. Great. Um, And it really does make a difference because they need to get voted in again, so if you write to them 
and uh, get as many people as you can to write to them. And as Sindhu said, you might not have a lot of money. If you have got a lot of money, obviously give it. Uh, if you've only got a bit of money that you think you can spare, and you think, oh, well, I'll just you know, take a coffee from home this week and I won't go to Starbucks or whatever, then give it. But the most important thing you could do is promote it. If you could send this podcast to as many people as possible, it'll come out noon tomorrow because it's a, it's a sort of, I think, an easier listen than a lot of what's out there. And I think that is important because... Um, when things are hard and difficult and there's no fun in them, people are like, oh, I can't look at it. It's so much. We've got the pandemic and da-da-da-da-da. Just look away from that. And I think this is an easy listen. I think you'll agree that these women who've come to speak to us today have been the most extraordinary, glorious advocates. And I want to give them all a huge, huge round of applause. What was your third thing, Cindy? My third thing was nothing can legitimize the Taliban. Just believe that today and just take that with you. Yeah, take that with you. It doesn't matter what your more educated uncle, cousin, aunt might say to you. Believe that. Just like you believe anything about yourself, you know. Whatever it is about yourself, your name, you believe that's your name, just believe nothing can legitimize the Taliban. That's one thing. The other thing I wanted to say is it can... Sometimes we think, well, if I'm doing something so easy, am I really helping? Do you know that feeling? You think, am I really helping just by doing something so easy? Yes, but if you need to make it hard, (laughs) here's what I suggest. (laughs) Educate yourself enough that when you have to talk to someone who says, well, we shouldn't interfere. Mm -hmm. We shouldn't interfere. Those women are allowed to choose how, blah, blah, blah. Just so that for five minutes you can have a talk with that person and not be like the worst guest ever. Or like the most annoying family member, but just for five minutes, just put in, just you know, just put in the hard work of saying that's wrong. I've become so unfun in the pub. Oh my god! god. Yeah, I didn't realize in lockdown how unfun I'd become in the pub. But I, I can't stop myself now. If I hear someone saying something, I'm like, but just to. Mm. And I see their face go, oh, it's Deborah again. Yeah. Feminism. But you but have I can't to, help you, it. But you have to do that. And then direct them to the podcast or direct them somewhere else. But that's kind of, make yourself a little uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. And then you know that, well, fuck, that was enough. And so, then you kind of are happy as well. So few stories about comfortable revolutions um, in history. I remember that comfortable revolution in um, Okay, so our final guest today has been both a guest and a coordinator for Refugees at Home. Born in Khartoum in Sudan, she came to the UK in 2015 as an asylum seeker. Please welcome Arij Osman. Where are you going? Yeah, you're, yeah you, we still need you. You're co-host. You don't get off. You're not. not, you're not. She, she's clocking out. She's got the punch card. Okay. Arish, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, but um, you've got me late after all these cool girls. I am so quiet and I'm so boring. No! And if you ask me a question, I might just answer a question or I might just not answer it. So <laughs> I am... This I... turned out to be way more weird than I thought it was. <laughs> it's like, you can ask me something, I may answer, I may not. <laughs> Arish, I know that you are a brilliant advocate for refugees at home because you yourself were someone who was seeking refuge in the UK mm-hmm. and 
how was it for you when you arrived here? What was the UK like? Was it welcoming? Was it scary? Was it overwhelming? Um, all those things. <laughs> I don't want you to fall off the stage. I'm so scared. That stay there. I'm not going to fall off. No, I'm scared. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So it was. Um, it's very different experience um, with the government and with the people. So um, you might know the asylum process in the UK is so like complex and mm-hmm. you can't understand it even if you speak English, you've lived in the country for so many years. They do that on purpose to make it difficult so people give up. It's so difficult. So um, it was difficult dealing with the government, with the home office, but on the other hand refugees at home uh, because it's just people, British people very nice, very kind they open their homes to refugees in need and asylum seekers in need. Hashtag so, not all British people. <laughs> no, but I'm glad <laughs> but, but it's some. nice that some yeah. Yeah, 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 and lots, I would say, you know yeah. yeah. So. so, yeah, it was um, my dealing with refugees at home and with the host was incredible. And it still is because I'm, I'm involved in the charity and working at the placement coordinator. So, um, so when you arrived here, did, you got your papers, but you didn't yet have anywhere to live. No. What was the process with refugees at home? So um, when you get a refugee status, the home office say, welcome, come to a country. And then the second letter is, you should evict this property in 28 days. And so <laughs> that's where be refugees are Be our guest, be <laughs> our guest, be our... Bye-bye. Uh, on your bike. Okay. So that's very that's British. It's so British, though. It's so passive-aggressive. <laughs> you are so welcome to leave. So that's where refugees at home comes in. Um, um, I heard about them and I was homeless, was sleeping on buses and um, in the park. Uh, so refugees at home offered me a really lovely uh, placement with the family for a couple of months. And yeah, uh, it just all I needed to um, get back on my feet again. And what were the family like? So lovely. They're vegan though. Wasn't <laughs> Good for the planet and also for female animals. But it's not fun. I it's, not fun. it's not fun. It's I'm, not fun. I'm it's so not sorry, fun. Emily and Heis, but you're you're lovely. But yeah. yeah, yeah. But it's a bit tricky if you've not previously been vegan to suddenly be thrust in along with all the other trauma. Yeah. It's also, it's also very tricky if you like ice cream. Dude, it's just oh, tricky. I know. I know. So lovely people. Not a lot of brie, <laughs> not a lot of uh, chicken sandwiches. So, uh, but how did you adapt to that? Did you just smile and nod politely and thought, oh. Yeah, I thought I might, might need to turn to a bird or something, but... Um, did but you think all British people were vegan at that point? I no, we... no, not no. really, no. I thought there should be a minority. <laughs> so you were staying with the minority, so that's, you know, it's good. Uh, and you, uh, but they were a lovely family. Was really that, cool. Uh, were there kids in the family? No, they're just um, partners. And yeah, we watch film together. We go to the parks. They introduce me to their friends and family. And I became part of the household. It was just so loving. And this, I think that's what refugees need, actually. Because um, you have all this trauma coming from your home and traveling. And I came from Africa. So you go on uh, like the lorries and you cross the sea and all that. And just you flee from the police forces and the last thing you want to see is a policeman or a police officer. So I think what Refugees at Home is doing is really great because you just see people um, mm-hmm. welcoming you. So no titles, no, no trauma. Mm-hmm. So say someone here 
wanted to get involved with refugees at home or they knew someone Do get who could. in touch with the refugees at home, yeah. Okay, but what's the procedure roughly? Um, so you just get in touch with us and um, if you have a spare room and you would like to welcome a refugee into your home, we will send a home visitor to your house just to check you're all right. And <laughs> <laughs> to make and sure you're not vegan. <laughs> So you would get in touch, if you have a spare room, you get in touch with refugees at home. We'll refugees send a home, come home give you a home visit to make sure it's not a basement and, you know. Yeah, yeah. and just check the accommodation and you're ready to go. We will match you with a refugee um, in need of accommodation. We get referrals from Refugee Council, from the Red Cross. Um, they do the assessment with the guests, we call them guests, clients, and uh, we'll make the match. We will make sure that every guest is suitable to be hosted and every host is suitable to host. And do you get, like, is it how long or is it depending on the guest? It depends on, the on your availability. Oh, it your availability. Both, both of them, yeah. But, so placements can go from one to two nights, two years. So it depends on you and your availability and how much you um, connect with your guest and you would like them to stay. Arij, also, I did refugees at home when we went away for Christmas. You did, yeah. Yeah. Um, so we went away for Christmas. So I met many of you, many of you will know that um, Tom and I have had Steve Ali living with us for four years now, and it's been amazing. And we've had, you know, he's you know very much our family, and I adore him, and we are completely you know connected. But uh, that was not through refugees at home. But we went away for Christmas, and because so, we were going up north, the flat was free. So I contacted refugees at home. And uh, they sent us a young Kurdish man uh, who was gay and uh, had to run at short notice, basically. And it was the most amazing experience. He came, we met him. I took him to a Grace Petrie concert um, because it was Christmas and she always has a Christmas concert. He could not have been... He was amazed because there was this lesbian punk band on stage singing, um, I want to kiss you in the street where everyone can see. Sorry, I was like crying saying this. He was so like... He was like, this is legal here. He was just like, his eyes. And I was like, the fact that they're singing in a kind of angry way tells you it's not fully resolved. But... Um, there's no acoustic guitar here, you'll note. Um, uh, but yes, and there was this big queer celebration. That was the first thing. And then we went away. Steve made him a Christmas stocking because, you know, he said, I'll pay it forward. He'd never had a Christmas stocking before and he gave one to Ari and it was really beautiful. And when we came back, uh, some people said to me, you're just going to leave a stranger in your house. Like, you know, they could just come back and the telly's gone. And I was like, well, what if it is? It's insured. But I, <laughs> but I highly doubt it will be because if I have an Airbnb guest, yeah, they might fuck off with the telly. But all a refugee has is their connections. That's all they have is their reputation and their connections and someone being kind who will tell somebody else, yeah, they're a good person. It's all they've got. We came back and the flat was cleaner than it's ever been. <laughs> there was sort of, you know, biscuits left for us and stuff like that. It was absolutely beautiful. And so my recommendation is if you've got, if you're going away on a holiday, you could give your house to some Afghan refugees who will be in your life forever, I reckon. Because if you turned up somewhere absolutely traumatised and someone said, well, this is how the washing machine works and there's food in the fridge and um, here's 50 quid if you need anything and we'll be back in two weeks. Or, love it. Oh, wouldn't you just be... Wouldn't that be such a healing to your trauma not to have to tiptoe around anybody else? So that is something I can recommend. You might be going away summer, Christmas, whenever. Um, you might have... Some people have a spare house you know, in the country or something like that. And that's very controversial, but not if you put refugees in it. Um, you can invite some refugees in to your second home. That's what I'm saying. Less controversial. 
My experience has only been amazing. Hashtag uh, not all refugees are no, saints and, and nor do they have to be. But, but that's also, my experience. But also, to Karen for what Deborah's saying, you don't try it. Just get in touch. Mm-hmm. You know, if you get in touch and you think, oh, this is not for me, that's fine. When we start to open our minds to new behaviors, there's a higher chance of us acting out on that behavior than if we did never tried. And English people are always so polite. They're like, I don't want to go there. And then, you know, I don't say yes. No, go there. Say mm-hmm. no. But try it. Open your minds. Because if, if we are going to help Afghani refugees or any refugees, we've got we've to do a little bit of what's uncomfortable until we feel like maybe mm-hmm. we can. Maybe we can't. But try. And please, can I just say one thing about being careful? Do not do this. Stay as long as you like. One week later, I can't deal with this. Yeah. Please don't do that. Say, I would, I'd, we'd love to give someone a placement for a week and then we need the room back, but if it went well, we'd love to offer them another week. Because then you've given someone a wonderful week, healing week, they think you need the room back, they don't feel rejected. Don't say, stay for three months if you know that you might actually, any of us could go, oh, this chemistry isn't working or whatever, it's your home. So please just offer something small and then offer more and offer more and extend um, and, you know, there came a point where I said to Steve, as long as Tom and I have a roof, you have a home. That's it. And, but that didn't, that didn't say that on day one. Because it's, not, it's not kind and it's not fair and it's not solidarity. Thank you so much for doing my job for me. Yeah. Sorry. <laughs> what else would you like to say, Arish? Um, what would you like to say? Just one last thing. So we really need home visitors. So if you um, have a professional background in home assessment, like making home visits and home assessments, please do get in touch because we have been overwhelmed with lovely um, 250 host applications since last week, which is incredible. We really need home visitors to do the visit. So do get in touch if you um, Oh, for home visitors. Oh, so you might have a room, but you could go and check other people's rooms. That would be quite interesting anyway. <laughs> I love looking around other people's houses. Can I do that? Um, uh, loads, of, loads of Afghan refugees turned up in Manchester, and you need rooms in Manchester, is that true? Uh, where do you get that from? I don't know. Because <laughs> yeah, I, I was asked to do some PR on it. Yeah. Oh, great, great, great. No, Af- it's only refugees uh, at home need, asked me to do PR about we it. We need hosts in Manchester as well. Yeah, yeah. Sorry, you say uh, I've been contacted by the donation centres in Manchester and around London. So if anyone wants details, I can post. I post them on my, all my social media. I constantly post news about Afghanistan because I'm the one that's in touch with most of them. So if you guys want to volunteer anything or donate anything, please do get in touch, and I can give you all the details. It's Manchester and Watford at the moment. And where where do they get in touch? Um, I've got. I can give you the details. There's donation centres and they do volunteering. And there's 50 families in uh, Manchester and about 32 in uh, Watford at the moment, but more are coming. And is there a, a URL, or we just put this in the show notes? Is there a website or a, a name? It's literally people's because it's all volunteers, okay. so it's one person's contact, and they're in charge of it. So I can. There's no website. It's a grassroots network. Get in touch. Uh, we'll put something in the show notes with an email address or something. How about that? Anything else? that you came to say that you didn't get to say. Thank you so much for the opportunity. And just thank you so much for everybody or everyone just got in touch with the refugees at home since last week. Our volunteers, our admin volunteers, our hosts, our home visitors, just really overwhelming. Thank you. Arish, do you need homes all over the UK or is it in specific places? 
shows. Do you need homes all over the UK or is it specific places? It's a national... Um, it's a national thing. So even yeah. if you're in the country or something... Yeah, you do get in touch, yeah. Okay, all over all right. the UK. I'm um, sorry. Sorry, that's so London of me. So even if it's not London, <laughs> what you're saying is... I mean, people have had a lot of trauma to then go to not London. <laughs> um, I'm, I'm sorry, I'm still to, I'm yet to do my um, UK residence test thing. So I was going to sound sophisticated and say Ireland or North Ireland and all that, but I don't want to mess up. So okay. just everywhere in the UK. Every, everywhere in the UK, including Northern Ireland. God, I'm sure I'll get cancelled for saying that. Uh, that's your fault, Arish, if I get cancelled. I may soon be coming to work for refugees at home full-time uh, because my position here is, frankly, tenuous. Um, Arish Osman, you promised not to be funny. You lied. You were hilarious throughout. That part Thank about you. the vegans, that's a stand-up routine. Can you come and do five on that? I'll write, I'll write I might, five minutes on that with you. After this episode, I might be kicked out, so... <laughs> not at all. Arish Osman, everybody! Thank you. feeling on top of it and ready for action. Uh, we have a musician we had on recently on a Zoom Guilty Feminist. She writes songs. She sings in her punk band, The Tuts. Uh, it's a mashup of punk and pop. Please welcome to the stage the incredibly talented Nadia Javert! Thank you. tickets so we could go see the streets and uh, I know right but I can't be fucked (laughs) like I've been like all week I've been in this summer rock camp and my band I've had five little minions uh, between the ages of 10 and 11 and um, I've been trying to get them to write a song and in the end well let me just tell you what happened wow so I had five 10 to 11 year olds And let's just say it was an achievement if we could get at least three of them on the stage to perform at the end of each day. But bless their hearts, they managed to write a song and it went like this. Sky don't cry, sky don't cry, there's no need to be shy. So like, all week that's all I've had in my head. And I'm like, what ten-year-old comes out with sky don't cry? What does that even mean? Who knows, but sky don't cry. There we go. So, um, So yeah, I had a breakdown and I also called the producer Tom, who uh, managed to calm me down. And then I decided to drive all the way back home and just get on the underground. <laughs> but here 
So, I'm going to do a song called uh, I Hate Boris. Uh, obviously, you know what this song is about. Uh, but please look out for the lyrics uh, about um, some of the brown Tories. Because isn't it great we have so many brown people in power? Yeah. Priti Patel. Yeah. Sajid Javid. Who, by the way, I'm not related to. <laughs> and, uh, of course, Rishi Sunak. I mean, good thing I didn't take his advice, otherwise I wouldn't be a musician, because he told us all to retrain. <laughs> so, anyway, this song is called uh, I Hate Boris, and uh, towards the end there's a line that says about Sajid Javid, you're a brown Uncle Fester who hates his ancestors. <laughs> right. I hate the weather And I hate Boris Johnson I hate Sajid Javid Cause he's brown and goes around town with his Tory gang I think he hates himself Stuff that Tory man, oh, he doesn't stand for me. He doesn't stand for me. It's not diversity. He doesn't represent me. I hate the weather, and I hate Boris Johnson. I hate Sajid Javid, cause he's brown and goes around town with his Tory. Himself that Tory man. He doesn't stand for me. He doesn't stand for me. It's not diversity. He doesn't represent me. At first he called us letterboxes, then he said that we're bank robbers, but you're the one stealing in broad daylight. What the hell? Pre-Patel! You think you're moving forward, but you're backwards and you're bordered. You're brainwashed, you're whitewashed, for the marginalised are lost. Tory tears wash away all the truth. I fear you empower the youth. Never choose your voting booth. I dare you switch up the truth. You're a disgrace to the human race. I can't stand to look at your face. You're a brown uncle fester who hates his ancestors. I hate the weather. Boris Johnson. Thanks. Uh, so, uh, uh, so um, yeah, so I'm going to do a song called I Can't Marry You. Yeah, I, I don't know, I feel like I should. I mean, I would marry you, Nelifer. I totally would. But I feel like you should sing this to your boyfriend. Actually, Nelifer and I, we, we were on this amazing photo shoot a couple of years ago called, like, hashtag trailblazing Muslim women. <laughs> and uh, blazed we blazed the trail. And, uh, yeah, I remember just, like, chatting shit in the toilets, like, at some point. It was great. It's amazing. But does anybody know what a Islamic marriage is, is called? Anybody? Yes. A nikah. Or nikah. Nikah. And so I was in a relationship with someone for eight years. And you know what? Like, he was actually, he was amazing. He made me feel so secure. He, yeah, I felt like, you know, that, that inner child was always embraced. Um, but there was just one thing that just wasn't there. And I, I just wasn't getting laid. Um, it was really weird. Like, I don't know, maybe he became like this fatherly figure. And like, 
no one wants to shag their dad. I mean, like, hopefully. But, um, so, yeah, so, and then his sister got married, and then I met his parents, and they were, like, putting the pressure on, like, you know, when are you two going to get married? You've you got to get in a car, you've got to make it halal. And I was like, what? Um, and one day, I was sitting in his bedroom, and the mum and the sister came in, and they were putting a lot of pressure on us. And I thought at that point, he would, like, back me up and be like, lay off, lay off. But he just, like, got up, walked out, went and had a bath. And I was like, great. And then I was left with them two. Um, so, yeah, that's kind of, like, what this song is about. And then, you know how, like, with some weddings, there's, like, 50 billion ceremonies. Like, for God's sake, what is this now? I know, it's, like, seven days. Um, so I walked into his... There was one ceremony that was within his house. And, like, the men were upstairs just, like, smoking shisha. And all the women were downstairs. And I walked in late, and they all turned around and looked at me. And I was like... Hi. And, and then the mum was like, this is, what should we call him? Because this is like, Steve. All right, let's just pretend Steve is a Muslim man. <laughs> so it's Steve the Muslim man. So I walk in and the mum's like, this is Steve's wife-to-be. And I was just like, ha, that's the first I've heard. And they all laughed, but it was, it was just really weird. And um, I realised I had to get out of that. So this song's called I Can't Marry You. You want to marry me, but you never even asked Your mum and sister cornered me when you went to have a bath Get in a car, make it halal I don't really want to end up just like my mum and dad Because they got divorced I'm at your sister's wedding and I feel out of place Everybody's here with a miserable face what a waste of money Your homophobic cousins aren't funny And I don't really want to end up just like my mum and dad And I can't marry you It's not in my truth And I can't admit, I can't commit But you're forcing me away You're forcing me to say got this weird dynamic where I'm the baby and you're the missing piece the dad who walked out on me we've got a lot of love but we don't make love I don't really want to end up just like my mum and dad because they got married young when my mum was 19 and sacrificed their youth to raise the family tree and I'm so privileged I'm living my ancestors' dreams And I don't really want to end up just like my mum and dad And I can't marry you It's not in my truth And I can't admit, I can't commit But you're forcing me away You're forcing me to Forcing me away, you're forcing me to say I fancy other people anyway. Mm-hmm.
Texas Mike, thank you. Good afternoon. Like when I said with music from Nadia Javid, you went, oh, no. No, I mean... I... That's how it sounded to me. D- Tom, do we need a bit more applause to tackle to the end? Or are you all right? Can you, can you make it work? Oh. Yeah, okay, thank you. Tom Zelensky, everyone, making it work since 2015. Yeah. This is The Guilty Feminist, the podcast in which we explore our... Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.